I hope your hearts have been encouraged this morning to recognize that our worship all revolves around God's word. We read his word, we sing his word, we pray his word, and this morning also we will be hearing God's word preached. Pastor Dave from Flint Hills Bible is going to come and preach to us this morning, and he's been a faithful pastor and friend um, through Flint, at Flint Hills for 15 years. And so we're excited to get to hear from him. He's a father and a husband and a pastor and a dear co-laborer for Christ. So I hope your hearts will be open and tender to hear God's word this morning. Pastor Dave, you come. Well, good morning, Redemption Hill Church from Flint Hills Bible Church. This is my second favorite church. <laughs> and it's great to be here. Um, I've known JD, I think, for maybe seven or eight years. And I know when we were kind of charting the course for our kids' college career, I'm a Jayhawk class of 1996. That's right, sorry, Wildcats. <laughs> and it was, uh, you know, there's a little bit of building tension in our house because, you know, where do we send the kids to school? Now, I've been dressing my kids in Jayhawk gear since birth, and I obviously had my preferences, and, and my wife always brought up, are you thinking about their spiritual interest and in directing them towards this? Well, when I found out that JD was church planting, there was no bigger fan. I was like, JD, you need to make it happen. And so he did. And this church has been one of the reasons why Julia's had such a wonderful experience at KU. You guys have taken her in, welcomed her as family. Not just Julia, we have Connor, the Camerons, and uh, next year my son will be here as well. So look out for Nathan, bring him in. I'm sure you guys will. So, uh, but it's an honor to be able to preach at my daughter's church. And um, we've been able to do so many things together. We just had a college retreat together, which was an absolute blast. And so I think the one complaint was it was too short, right? So I think we're planning on doing it again next year. Well, let me go ahead and, and pray, and then we'll open up the word. Well, Father, we are just grateful to come here today to study your word. Lord, I thank you for this community of faith. I thank you for JD and Stephen and their leadership of this body. I thank you for their hunger and their desire to glorify you in all regards. I thank you for just their high view of you. I thank you that they want to know you and they want you to shape how they live their lives. And I pray that this will just give them a vision of what it means to be a, a worthy man as we talk about the life of Boaz. In Christ's name, amen. Well, one of the ways I have a relationship with many of you is we host the Ironman Summit. Have you guys, raise your hand if you've been there. So yeah, Scott, I think you've gone to every single one. Just about, just double digits. So yeah, I might have missed one. So might have been sick, who knows. But it's, a, it's just a wonderful time where we get together in January. Uh, we feed you like you're on a cruise. And then we just bring the word. And, and the whole topic is masculinity. Now, to pull it off, uh, it takes thousands of man hours. And what's interesting is that the man hours are usually uh, performed by the women of our church. I mean, the... <laughs> I should call them person hours, right? And they really put their backs into the conference. And so at our church, sometimes the question is asked, uh, why don't we do something similar for the women? I mean, why do we put all this effort into men's ministry? And that's a good question. 
And the answer I've kind of come up with is we don't really need to put that much effort into women's ministry. Uh, they're already motivated. Like, who were the last people at the cross? It was the women. Who were the first people at the, at the tomb? It was the women. In fact, studies have shown that women have a higher degree of spirituality than men. They buy 72% of the Christian fiction books, 59% of the non-Christian books, although men buy 58% of the Bibles. We're collectors, and we gift shop, right? That's why. <laughs> and even if you look at the, the stats, uh, among evangelicals of prime marrying age, for every 100 women, there's 93 men. Women just in general are more spiritually attuned than men. And I, I don't really know why that's the case. Um, I think there's a, there's a possibility of that just being more vulnerable makes you look for some protection outside yourself. It's easier for women to depend on somebody else, to depend on the Lord. Uh, that's just a theory. But, but all that to say, there is a shortage of, of good men. And so one of the reasons why they are so happy to invest in this Iron Men Summit is because they want to make worthy men. They want to make strong men because strong men help make strong women. Does that make sense? There's a reciprocal relationship there. And today, I want to kind of give you a paradigm of what makes a man a, a worthy man. And we're going to turn to the book of Ruth, right? Go to Judges. It's a book after Judges. And this is the story of redemption. It's a redemption of Naomi, who was a wayward Israelite who moves away on account of the leadership of her husband and encounters all kinds of tragedy. She loses her husband. She loses her son. She loses her whole world. And at this point in the book, she is at the absolute low point in her life. She has lost everything. But when she hears that there's a harvest in Bethlehem, she goes back home. She returns the shell of the woman that she left. And as she goes home, she tries to push away her daughters-in-law, succeeds with one, but you have Ruth, who has something called a, a hesed love for her, a loyal love, a covenantal love. He will not leave her. She will not leave her. And so this is a, a turning point in the book where she encounters a man that will lead to her redemption, a man named Boaz. And we're introduced to him in Ruth 2.1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, we see two descriptions here. Boaz was a relative of her husband's. This will play a key role later on in the book as uh, the practice of leveret marriage means that he is to take her eventually, take Ruth as his wife. But the other description here is he is a worthy man. Now, on the surface, the most basic definition of worthy is a man of worth. He's a man of means. He, he obviously has a lot of land. He oversees a large agricultural uh, operation. He would be a leader in the community. He is a worthy man. But there is another sense of this. And we get a sense of the expanded definition of worthy in Ruth 3.11, where Boaz tells Ruth, that all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Now, what's interesting is Ruth did not have land. She did not have wealth. She was at the bottom of the social strata, but yet he calls her 
worthy because she is a woman of high character. So when we look at Boaz, we see that he is a worthy man and in this narrative that we're about to go through, we see what makes him a worthy man and it's this. A worthy man assigns worth to women. A worthy man assigns worth to women. His esteem of women, his treatment of women show that he is a noble man. He is a picture of what men ought to be. As men, we are are gifted with strength and the ability to protect and provide. And, And as we go through this passage, we're gonna see three elements of a worthy man. We see that the worthy man protects women, a worthy man provides for women, and a worthy man prizes women. Now, out of mercy to your note takers, I'm gonna say that again. A worthy man protects women, a worthy man provides for women, and a worthy man prizes women, right? The measure of a man's worth is how he uses his strength. How does he esteem and regard women? So this is why my preaching strategy, okay? We're gonna go through this passage, and then I'm gonna circle back and camp out on each of these three points, okay? So turn with me, look at verse one, and we'll start there. And Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with ancient Near Eastern agriculture, which would be just about everybody, let me inform you. Before the days of tractors and combines, this was a heavy, heavy manpower operation. You have a field of of standing wheat. And in the first wave, they'd take sickles and scythes and just kind of, you know, chop it all down. And then they would would gather it into bundles. And usually, uh, generally speaking, the women would, would tie them up so they could transport these bundles to the threshing floor. And then afterwards, you'd have a second wave where the standing stalks of wheat would still be there. And they would go ahead and pick them by hand and they would glean them. It was kind of like when you trim the... When you trim the lawn, right? You use a weed trimmer. Uh, It was that type of operation, right? So big first wave, and then you have the second wave. And what Ruth wants to do is she wants to go and just pick the leftover trimmings to gather food for her, and in this case, her her mother-in-law. Now, this was permissible. It was actually commanded in Leviticus 19, 9 through 10. When you reap the harvest of your land... You shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner, I am the Lord your God. This was God's way of making sure that the poor had ways to harvest some grain. They were to glean. And so she says in verse two, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Now she wants to go and she's hoping that some landowner will grant her favor. Now you might think, well, isn't it commanded to allow a widow and a sojourner to to glean? Well, this was the time of the judges where everybody did what was right in their own eyes, right? There is no guarantee 
that in the wild west of Israel at this time, that people were going to obey this law and allow a poor Moabite widow to cut in on their harvest. Remember, they just had a famine. And so she tells her mother-in-law, this is what I'm going to do, and this is what Naomi says. And she said to her, go, my daughter. In other words, I'm not going. Naomi is at a low point. She is dispirited. And now Ruth is going to have to glean for two. So she set out, verse 3, and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now the word happened could also be translated, and wouldn't you know it? And wouldn't you know it? She goes out hoping to find favor, and in this, this patchwork of field, she chooses this one, and wouldn't you know it, it belongs to Boaz. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Boaz, wouldn't you know it, happens to be checking on his field, this particular field at this time. He's present. Then Boaz said to his young women, or sorry, said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And that's kind of an interesting phrase, isn't it? Who does this woman belong to? Now, in that culture, at that time, every woman had a man to speak for her. A daughter had her father. A wife had her husband. Maybe a widow would have her son. A sister would have her brother. A servant would have her master. Every woman had a man to speak for her, with the exception of maybe a prostitute. So he's asking, who speaks for this woman? I don't recognize her. Who does she belong to? Verse 6, And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. In other words, no man speaks for this woman. She is a Moabite from Moab. Notice the double emphasis. She's not one of us. She is a Moabite from Moab. She's not part of our people. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. Now this is a pretty audacious request that she's making. At least this is what he says she is making. Now remember, Ruth said, I just want to glean. He's saying she wants to gather after the sheaves. Now remember that two-stage way of harvesting grain? They would go ahead and cut down everything, and they would form them into sheaves, and then they would transport the sheaves away, and then they'd go ahead and glean. This guy is saying that she wants to just pick from among the sheaves. This would be the equivalent. You guys do potlucks here? Oh, I love potlucks. I love them. Let's say a poor family comes to your church, and they they ask if they can join you for the potluck. And the answer is, of course you can. And then they say, would you mind if we take some food home? Of course you can, right? And the expectation would be this. You know, after we're all done eating, you can go ahead and take home all the leftovers, right? Isn't that standard policy? 
But then they say, well, actually, we brought a bunch of storage containers, and we're hoping that we can go ahead and take all that we want on the first run. Right? That is a big ask, isn't it? Well, that is what this foreman is saying Ruth wanted to do. She wants to take all the grain on the first run. Can you believe the gall? And then verse 7, and I'm going to quote from the NASB, which I think is a superior translation. Thus she came, just for this passage, by the way. I'm an ESV guy, just so you know. <laughs> thus she said, thus she came, and, and has remained from morning until now, and has been sitting in the house for a little while. In other words, she came, and now she hasn't been doing any work. She's just been sitting in the house, and part of it is because she's not allowed to. Now, remember the, the foreman features her as a Moabite? She's an outsider. And then he accuses her of taking more than her fair share that she made this big, audacious request. This foreman is not giving her a very, very warm welcome. In fact, as we keep on reading, you see that Boaz's actions that he's about to take, he has a sevenfold plan, is likely a direct repudiation of what the foreman was doing. Look at verse eight. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. One, do not glean in another field. Two, or leave this one. Ruth, I want you to stay here. Don't think about going to another field. Three, but keep close to my young women Four, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping. And five, go after them. Stay close to the women. And Naomi, when she hears this report, knows exactly what he's doing. Verse 2.22, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with the young, his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Notice how Boaz understood the vulnerability of Ruth. Six, have I not charged the young men not to touch you? There'll be no sexual harassment in my agricultural operation. And seven, and when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. You're to have full access to the water. Now, here is a possible reconstruction. Ruth shows up, and she is gleaning after the reapers, as the law of God commanded. Now, this is after a famine. The people are extra selfish during this time. It's the time of the judges. And all of these young men are looking around. It's like, what is she doing here? The more she takes, the less we have. Are we just going to sit here and let this, this Moabite from Moab, this outsider, this stranger, take the harvest that Yahweh has given us? And so they decide, since she's only related to Naomi and no man speaks for her, that you know, we're going to make life a little bit more difficult for her. So a little touch here, derogatory comment there. And then when she is thirsty and comes for water, they stand in front of the, the water pots and say, so what are you willing to do to get a drink of water? And then Boaz shows up and the fun's over. He says, now wait a second here. 
You are to let her harvest as much as she wants. And then he makes a a grand gesture here. He goes beyond. In verse 10, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice to me since I am a foreigner? You see her humility, right? I'm just a foreigner. I'm just an outsider. I don't deserve this kind of treatment. She is not self-entitled. She's going to say, well, it's about time somebody stood up for me. She sought the Lord's favor, and she sees that the Lord is granting favor through this man, and she is humbled by it. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and native land and came to a people that you did not know before. See, Boaz doesn't see her through social status. He sees her in terms of her spiritual character. Like one of the themes that we have throughout the book of Ruth is this term hesed. You guys ever heard that term hesed? It's it's the Old Testament word for covenantal love. It's a love that makes a promise and keeps a promise. It is a loyal, loving kindness. And if you know the book of Ruth, Ruth tries to send her daughter-in-law back and says, you know what? There is no way I can produce a son for you. Your life will be over if you come with me. My life is over. Go back to your home. Leave me in my bitterness. And remember what Ruth says? Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your gods will be my God. Don't turn me away. Well, Boaz heard the story. And he, on account of his relationship with his kinsman, Elimelech, cared about Naomi and has a deep admiration for this Moabite woman who left everything to serve this suffering Israelite. He says, verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward is given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth, you have taken refuge in the God of Israel. May God repay you. And you know what? He wants to be the means, the agent, the channel by which God gives her favor. And then he said, and then she said, in verse 13, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Right? He is an answer to her prayer. She sought the favor of the Lord. It's been given and granted through, through Boaz. And then it gets better. Verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some leftovers. Now this was more than just get in, get out. This was a time of of feasting and hospitality. And and Boaz says, Ruth, come, come join us. Come sit here. 
here, have some of this roasted grain and, and make sure you dip it in the wine. It's better that way. He wants her to enjoy the fullness of the meal. Right? You don't just have fries. You have fries with ketchup. You don't just have bread. You have it with the wine. Enjoy it. And here, take some home. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, right? She's, she's out of the picture, and he says, okay, listen, guys. Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Okay, so once she's gone, remember that two stage where you have the bundles and the sheaves? He's basically saying, I want you to do what you accused her of asking to do. You accused her of wanting to harvest among the sheaves? Just give her the sheaves, give her the bundles. Make sure she has plenty to take with her. Right? This is an act of kindness and of generosity and it's the actions of a worthy man. Now circling back, I want to talk about the first element of a worthy man that we see in this passage. That a worthy man protects women. Okay? A worthy man protects women. Now last year, my daughter took a class here. Sorry, Julia, but it fits into my sermon. Uh, self-defense for women. And they learned all kinds of tricks, where to kick, where to punch, all this other stuff. But, but the overall mor- morale of the, um, moral of the, of the class was this. These techniques can buy you some time. But just about every man can overpower you. The key to safety is to be smart and not put yourself in dangerous situations, right? And that's a world that women live in, where 90% of the men are stronger than 90% of the women. At any given point in time, they can suffer at the hands of men. And in this case, Ruth was in danger of being assaulted by these men. Now, now you think, well, doesn't the Lord have laws that protect this kind of action against women? The answer is yes. But this is the time of the judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This was the Wild West. She was vulnerable. Unless there is a man who's willing to act on behalf of the Lord and protect women, she was vulnerable. And remember, she was vulnerable because there was no man to speak for her. If you guys know much about sex trafficking, the way it works is they will take a woman, transport her away from her family, away from her support network so that there's nobody to speak for her, nobody to advocate for her, no one to call the cops if she's missing. And without that infrastructure of support, She is forced to do things that she would not otherwise do. They are forced into prostitution, right? Because she's trafficked. Now in this case, Naomi had no man to speak for her. But notice in verse eight, look how Boaz addresses Ruth. Now listen to my daughter. Now listen, my daughter. Listen, my daughter. Did he catch that? I will speak to you. I will speak for you. I will treat you as my daughter. 
I will look out for you when you have nobody else to look out for you. He's offering her protection. So many men are, are what I call hypothetical protectors. Right, if a gunman were to come in here, you know, you'd push the women down, cover them with your bodies, and allow yourself to be shot first, right? A lot of times we can have these heroic dreams of all that I'll do to protect women, but, but protection is not hypothetical. You know if somebody would do that by how they live their lives and how they treat women in general. And I think there's some obvious things that you can do to help women feel safe and secure around you. Number one, don't stare at them. Don't follow them around, right? Just a little life hack for you guys. But I want to focus on two ways to help women feel safe and secure. Number one, take the appropriate initiative. Boaz not only welcomed Ruth, he took the initiative with her. Remember how he invited her to have dinner? You know, to enjoy their, their feast together, he took initiative. Now, we live in a day and age where um, there's all kinds of uh, tension between the sexes. In the day and age of a Me Too movement, many men are, are afraid to be around women. They're afraid of the accusations. They're trying to protect themselves. Uh, many of you, and I practice this as well, the Billy Graham rule which is you're not to be alone with a woman who is not your kin. It's a good rule. But this is an unintended consequence. If you always see women as a potential threat to you, you begin to see them not as sisters in Christ, but as threats to your purity and to your walk with the Lord. You know, it's something where women feel excluded, unknown, uncared for, because you keep them at arm's length. There is a place for taking what I call appropriate initiative um, with women, where you get to know them as sisters, you have real conversations with them, you, you seek to understand them. I mean, and there is an appropriate line of, of what you can talk and not talk about. Uh, but what's interesting is, is Boaz is not afraid to initiate with Ruth and bring her in. And, and there is no romantic intrigue at this point. What's also interesting is he takes the initiative with her and we have no idea what Ruth looks like. We always assume she's beautiful, but there's nothing in the text that, that mandates that. We also see that he cares not just about Ruth, but he cares about Naomi as well. He cares about all women. And so something to, to think about is you take initiative with all women. You want to get to know all women, not just the beautiful ones, not just isolating on one. You have a genuine concern for all women. You, you, you have a concern for them, and they know it, and they feel safe around you. You take appropriate initiative. Secondly, to protect you, you need to be impartial. Now, Boaz did not buy the narrative given by the foreman. You see, often when you're in a church like ours, I mean, you are a complementarian church and we are as well, right? And, and that means we believe the biblical teaching and affirm the biblical wisdom that in a marriage, God has designed men to lead the family and for women to joyfully submit. And that extends even to the church where the men are to lead the church and the women are to 
you know, joyfully follow with uh, the other members of the church. But sometimes that can create um, some problems where you have, let's say, an all-male elder board, and, and let's say you have uh, a husband who's being abusive, oppressive, uh, controlling his wife. Often what those men will do is they'll try to ingratiate themselves and befriend the pastor and befriend the elders and kind of almost create this, this good old boys club where they all get together and they talk about, well, you know, women, the curse of Eve is strong in them. They just want to usurp our authority. Oh, my wife is so difficult. And, and what can happen is that these men become friends with this abuser and this abuser is able to groom them so that if the wife ever wants to talk to the elders about what this husband is really like, she's afraid that the elders won't believe them. Does that make sense? That's one of, of the dangers of this. And that's why being impartial is key. When Boaz shows up, he doesn't just believe the men. He sees the situation for what it is, and he's able to exact justice he is impartial, he is fair, and out of that, he's able to protect Ruth and protect Naomi. So all that to say, you take appropriate initiative, make sure that the women have an open channel of communication, they feel like they can, can talk to you about things that concern them, and then be impartial. Help women to feel safe around you. Secondly, a worthy man provides for women. Notice how Boaz doesn't get cheap with Ruth. He doesn't say, just go ahead and glean. He says, go ahead and glean, but I'm going to give you more. Here, take the leftovers. Here, participate in this feast. Enjoy the wine. And by the way, men, make sure you leave plenty of leftovers that she could take home. He's not cheap. He seeks to be generous with her. See, part of love is a concern for not only Ruth, but also for Naomi. He wants to provide out of his excess. And, and what motivates him to do so? Well, Proverbs 19:17: Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. He is a godly man who wants to give out of his excess. Paul tells such people in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. John Wesley once said, make all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. I often tell young men that if you want to be a good husband, make it your goal to be a good provider, right? And this has implications for you young men. If you are going into debt to study philosophy or sociology, and you're hoping to one day be an assistant manager at Starbucks, you, you might want to rethink your choice of majors. Did I zing anyone? Okay. But don't sit around expecting to be taken care of, right? Provision doesn't mean you just provide for yourself. 
You want to be able to provide so much for yourself that you have excess to provide for others. And this is not to say that that women can't work outside of the home. But there is a certain amount of protection when a man is able to provide well. Wouldn't you agree? You know, there, there is a comfort in knowing that he will make sure that there is bread on the table, the mortgage is being paid, the bills will be taken care of. Be a man who provides. Providing is a way of protecting women. And thirdly, a worthy man prizes women. A worthy man prizes women. Now what's really interesting about this passage is the genuine admiration that Boaz has for Ruth. Did he pick that up? He has genuine admiration for Ruth. In Ruth 2.11, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Right? When, when you think about some woman who's being admired or has many admirers, you think, well, she must be very attractive. Uh, perhaps she's witty and fun or comes from a good family or, or has some social prominence, right? She has many admirers for that reason. But why does he admire her? Because she has shown hesed covenantal love. She exemplifies the type of love that God has for his people. He sees it, he admires it. You know, I've been thinking about Ruth and I and one of the one of the great things about Ruth is you see Christ figures in Ruth, right? And naturally you look at Boaz and you think, well, that's a Christ figure. That's a Christ figure, right? He, he redeemed a wayward woman. But have you ever thought about maybe Ruth being a Christ figure? I didn't know women could be Christ figures. Well, they can. They can manifest Christ as well. You see, Boaz sees godliness in Ruth. And he looks up to her. Isn't that amazing? He esteems her as worthy. And what's interesting is it's not in the I want to get to know you better type of admiration. He sees something in her that he desires in himself. He wants to reward her. And his esteem of Ruth and Naomi leads him to protect her and take action and to give her honor. Now, sadly, that's, that's something that some men have a hard time with. Uh, one of the uh, podcasts I like to listen to is Ask Pastor John. You guys ever listen to Ask Pastor John? You know, John Piper, one of my favorite theologians, very wise. And, and this is a question that, that he fielded. Dear Pastor John, My husband and I have been married for nearly 30 years. He's grown convinced that there is something wrong with me. I'm a Christian and have been since I was 10 years old. He is also convinced that God sees me as subservient to him and in every way. Tonight I asked him if he believes women are subservient to men in creation and he answered without hesitation, yes. He's always treated me like he is superior to me in every way. 
The way he treats me is very hurtful. I don't think I can continue to go on with this angry, aggressive spirit. When he gets angry with me about anything, he locks me out of the bedroom and out of our house. I literally want to run away. I despise this life. Please help encourage wives who are treated as inferior. Naturally, John Piper gives some wise advice rooted in 1 Peter 3.7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, what's interesting about this is if you don't treat your wife well, God doesn't hear your prayers. That's rebellion against him. But secondly, he calls a wife the weaker vessel. Now, you might think that's because she's weak. Think of it this way. There is a contrast between the big gulp jug. You know what I'm talking about? Quick trip. I mean, there's all some iteration of, you know, the plastic is about that thick around. You can refill it at your 7-Eleven or quick trip. That's a man, okay? You can drag that quick trip big gulp mug behind your truck and, you know, the coffee's still warm. It's amazing. (laughs) But the woman is a weaker vessel and you think about just the pottery in that day and age, they don't have like the big gulps on display in the Smithsonian, right? It's the Ming vases. It, It is the delicate, finely crafted vases. So when he's talking about the weaker vessel, that's what he's talking about. It's a champagne glass. So you treat them with honor as something that is precious. Showing her honor as a weaker vessel. You see, many insecure narcissistic men believe that the way to have leadership is to always put their wife down. To keep her in her place. To make sure that the curse on Eve doesn't surface itself in the marriage. And if I affirm her, encourage her in any way, that will just reward her and she'll try to take control of everything. But that's not the heart of Christ. You know, those men believe that the only way that they will get respect is if they crush the spirit of their wives. The only way that they'll have leadership is if they believe, get their wives to believe that they are incapable of leading themselves. Right? That is a man who tears down his house, who doesn't build up the women, who doesn't show worth. A worthy man shows worth to women. Agreed? Unless I forget, one more way to honor women is to quit porn. Is to quit porn. Now, I realize in this smartphone generation, among Generation Z, that porn is not just a male problem, it's also a female problem. And so if you're a young woman who struggles with that, I'm not overlooking you. I acknowledge that the struggle is real and I encourage you to get some help. But for today's purposes, I want to address the men and the male struggle and why this turns worthy men into unworthy men. So what porn does is it objectifies women. Women are trafficked and objectified in the production of porn. Many of them are are forced to do it against their will or perhaps they have to be high on drugs to, to make it happen. When men look at porn, they are taught to look at, uh, you know, at women in an objective way where they are sources of titillation. There's no love expressed. There's no respect for those women. And it begins to, to change the way you see all women. You're incapable of really appreciating them. Now, when I 
mentor men, and I've helped many men deal with porn. Um, there's kind of four general strategies I talk about. You have to get rid of the anonymity, make sure that people know what you're looking at. You need to get rid of the affection, just that desire to have porn. You need to get accountability, somebody to ask you these questions, as well as the atheism where the fear of God helps drive that away. But one way to help get rid of porn is to see women as worthy, to have good relationships with women, to value and appreciate women so that you don't even want to see them that way. Does that make sense? And that's what I encourage men to do is your problem is you think too lowly of women to think highly, to engage them, to respect them, to love them, that is part of the putting on of putting off porn, is you value women. And frankly, dealing with this issue is a real opportunity for this generation. In fact, I've, I've been thinking about just what are the potential areas of growth in this church, and I am convinced that the greatest area of growth in the church in the future, in the next 10 years, is going to be young men. It's going to be young men. And that might surprise you, right? Because you look at the shortage of men in the church, and and this is why I believe this is the case. Currently, the world right now tells young men that you are the problem. You have masculinity, well, it's toxic. By virtue of your strength and your position in society, you are an oppressor. And so what you need to do is surrender everything that makes you uniquely male. You need to be ashamed of it, deny it, and just basically surrender your power and spend your life in permanent penance making up for your toxic masculinity, right? That's not a good gospel. I remember talking to a young man, and he was in his uh, sociology class, and he was singled out by his professor and asked, how does it feel to be an oppressor? And he looks around, and, he, and everyone's looking at him. Why was he singled out? Right? That's the world that, that we live in. And so one way that you can deal with that is become a permanent penitent. <laughs> you know, just be penitent forever. Apologize for being a man forever. Never lead, never assert yourself, never do anything that affirms toxic masculinity. The second route you could take is to stand up for male rights. (laughs) Basically become a chauvinist. To lash back. Men, we need to stand up together. That's not biblical either. But there's a, a third way and a better way. And that is to understand that God has given you many of these traits He's given you the strength, the drive, some of the aggression and the initiative so that you can use it to assign worth to women. He can change you. He can transform you. He can liberate you from all of those things. I mean, one of the reasons why so many women don't trust men is because they've been pornified, but he can break you free from that so that you can be a worthy man who uses his strength to cause women to flourish. And the first step that you need to take to go down that path is this. You need to look to Boaz, and you need to look beyond Boaz to the person he represents, which is Jesus Christ. 
right? Jesus Christ, when you look at his life, he treated women well. Remember when he heard that that 12-year-old girl was sick and he, and he, he is walking towards her when all of a sudden this woman who's been bleeding for decades touches him? And instead of rebuking this trembling woman, he says, your faith made you well. Then he raises that woman from the dead. He tenderly deals with Mary and Martha. On the cross, as he's suspended, about to die, he makes sure that John will take care of his mother. He loved women. And on the cross, he endured the righteous wrath of God that was dear due for all people, men and women. And then he rose from the dead so that all who followed him, regardless of their gender, can have eternal life. If you want to be a worthy man, you look to Jesus and you give him your heart to change, to transform you, to make you into a man after his own heart. And you know what? I rejoice in this church because I know there's many Boazes here. There's many men who are worthy. Maybe they're not perfectly worthy. You know, we all fall short. But let that be a vision for what you want God to be in your life. Let's pray. Well, Father, I do thank you for this body. I thank you for this fellowship. I thank you for just their drive and the men of the church who want to be worthy men. And I pray that this will push them along the way. Uh, I pray for anyone here who has been uniquely touched by this message. Perhaps they know they have been enslaved to certain sins that keep them from it, that this will be an opportunity for the scales to fall off from their eyes and for them to turn and repent. I pray that this will be a, a church where the men ascribe worth to women and cherish them and value them and that there'll just be a, a beautiful uh, relationship between the genders here where the brothers and sisters truly see themselves as family and, and seek to nurture each other to Christ-likeness and godliness. Lord, um, bless this church and use it to just be a beacon of light in a very dark community. May this church be... Um, an example of what it means to follow your plan for the family and the church and that they will turn out and make worthy men. In Christ's name, amen.